0: Hi there, I'm Peace Talks Radio co-founder and series producer Paul Ingalls. And this is a special broadcast marking 20 years of the Peace Talks Radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Stay tuned for an inspirational sampling of just some of the nearly 800 guests we've featured on our programs dating back to our pilot show in 2002 and all the way through to 2022. After the 9-11 attacks of 2001, Suzanne Kreider and I set out on a mission to protect some of the media landscape for talk about peacemaking throughout history and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies that we could all apply to our daily lives. We've been joined along the way by about a dozen hosts and correspondents all contributing their efforts for frankly too modest pay to tell the stories of people doing good work to promote peace, love, justice, and understanding around the globe. We've been joined by now 85 radio stations in 25 states in the U.S. that have picked up our broadcast on a weekly basis and scores of other stations that have picked up individual episodes, meaning that by now it's not a stretch to say that upwards of 30 million people have been reached by our broadcasts, podcasts, and website, hearing voices like these from our earliest episodes.
1: Well, like take Martin Luther King for an example. He was trying to make world peace for the African Americans. He was saying to them, you know, don't fight about it. The white men are your brothers.
2: And he just bursts into tears. It was just a a gorgeous moment that I think typifies what we're there to do, which is allow people to do the work that they want to be doing so that their country can move forward.
3: One thing you, uh, or I, I, or any of us can do is remind ourselves that our first urge to get angry uh, is probably coming from the amygdala and we need to give the rest of our brain time to catch up.
4: Religion and politics, they can be beautiful, but they guarantee division. Music can guarantee connection. Music is, in my opinion, the best way.
0: Also on the program, a conversation with University of Toronto professor Thomas Homer Dixon about the awarding of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize to Al Gore and the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change.
1: I think it's good. I I think that people do need to recognize that climate change has security implications. In combination with other factors, it can lead to violence. It can lead to societal breakdown. It can lead to enormous trauma within societies. There are some people who think, That climate change doesn't have any security implications at all, but I think they're wrong.
0: We'll hear from Vietnam veterans about their journeys back to Vietnam to meet their former enemies.
5: Tom Tien was a Viet Cong,
0: the former enemy. He greeted us with a big smile and hugs, and he wants to hear your story. He told us his story. We shot him, left him for dead, but he held no grudge also meet prison inmates who reformed their lives with the help of a special in-prison program when you find
6: someone to treat you like a human being not like you are someone to be thrown away it uh, has an impact on you curl and it had a great impact on me
3: well one of the things that i've learned in the last 20 years since i left the white house much more clearly than i did when i was president
0: Nobel Prize winner Jimmy Carter talked with us the year he won the prize in 2002.
3: Is it, there's no way to separate, you know, a commitment to justice and peace and freedom and democracy and human rights and environmental equality and the alleviation of suffering. So that's why we have seen that in order to maintain peace in a country, you really have to deal with the most uh, abject facets of life because quite often when people have no hope and no self-respect and no prospect for a bare existence, they tend to turn to anger and begin a, a civil war or lash out at their neighbors. So you, you can't separate the alleviation of suffering or environmental degradation, where they lose their land and lose their streams, from their inclination to despise their leaders or even to hate you know, distant success stories like in America. So they're all interrelated. That's a basic point.
0: One of our most inspiring guests was Azim Kamisa, whose son Tariq was murdered in a random act of gang violence on the streets of San Diego in 1995. Instead of seeking revenge, Azim forgave his son's imprisoned killer and then partnered with the killer's grandfather and created a school program
7: aimed at stopping the violence. But I started with a very simple premise that violence is a learned behavior. Nobody was born violent. None of our children were born violent. But if you accept that violence is a learned behavior, nonviolence can also be a learned behavior. But who teaches it? At TCAF, we do teach it. Uh, We have a lesson on empathy. and the theme on empathy is, I don't know you, till I walk a mile in your shoes, and you don't know me till you walk a mile in my shoes. And this was a seventh grader. His name was Alex in seventh grade, and had all the signs, the sway, the encounter, the colors. You could see a wannabe gang member written all over this kid. And somehow this lesson on empathy got to him. Then the homework is that they have to practice empathy for the whole week, and the week after, before they get their lesson on compassion, they asked to share their homework on empathy. And when the teacher asked who wants to share their lesson on empathy, it was Alex. Now, remember, this is a kid that's the most deceptive kid in the class. And what he shared that was very powerful, and what he said is, I was walking in my hood last weekend, and this kid gave me a dirty, angry look. The rules of the hood are, if a kid gives you a dirty, angry look, you go beat him up. But because you taught me that you don't know me till you walk a mile in my shoes, and I don't know you till I walk a mile in your shoes, I walked up to this kid and said, why are you giving me a dirty look? So the kid said to me, I'm not giving you a dirty look. I'm angry because my brother was shot and killed last night. So what did you do, Alex? I held his hand. Hmm. We cried together. I gave him a hug. I I told him, I know how you feel because I lost my uncle six months ago. One lesson. And you think that this kid walks the hood every weekend. Tell me you can't teach nonviolence. You see, the power of this, what could have been Mm -hmm. a a fight became a compassionate action, you know? Uh, One of the key messages we teach is that from conflict, love and unity are possible.
4: So nonviolent communication says, let's learn how to be honest about how we are. Marshall Rosenberg, originator of nonviolent communication,
0: a strategy for engaging with others.
4: First of all, to tell people specifically what they're doing, that is or is not contributing to our well-being. And to be very specific about that, not to mix in any diagnosis or any analysis. We call that a clear observation. The observation step, right. And then, once we've done that, we're honest with people, but we're honest with them from the heart, by telling them what's alive in us when they do that. And that, more specifically, is how we feel, what emotions we feel, and we connect our feelings to our needs. And then we follow that up with the other question. What would make life more wonderful? And we answer that with a very clear request, not using any fuzzy language, but exactly what would we like back from that person at this moment in response to what we have said, in response to the fact that some of our needs are not getting met by their behavior. But many people use the mechanics hoping that it will be a way of getting what they want. Mm. Because one of the hardest things for people to give up in using nonviolent communication is the objective of winning, getting what you want. Mm. Now, when I say that, many people think then I'm suggesting you be a chump and just give up your needs and give in. No, no, not at all. The objective is to create the quality of connection that will get everybody's needs met. But that means we cannot be addicted to getting our request fulfilled by the other person. It means we're more interested in the quality of connection than in any specific result.
8: Peace starts within, right? I think about peace happening in many different places. There's a peace in myself, how am I holding myself? I know that when I started NVC, one of the things that really powerfully drew, drew me to it was my realization that I had internalized all of society's judgments about me. I'm a black woman. <laughs> I'm an immigrant. I am fat by normal um, what people would normally consider an ideal body weight. I'm hearing impaired. I've got a lot of different things that people discriminate against. And I had internalized a lot of negative messages about these. And I found myself moving through the world, judging myself harshly about everything. It is hard to create peace, to look at other people non-judgmentally when we're applying that to ourselves. So start to look at how you're holding yourself. Is there a way to bring more compassion to yourself and then to the people in your inner circle? And then to widen that to the people in your community and then to the people that you don't see as part of your community. But peace actually has to start from within, because otherwise we just start to perpetuate these dynamics that also spread out and keep us divided from each other.
6: When we live together with other people, particularly if we do so over a longer period of time, and we develop a bit more closeness with each other, we begin to reactivate family pattern dynamics. Like we begin to have the same kind of attachment distress or attachment bonding, and that both has the the plus sides and some of the challenges that we had with our family of origin. So the classic example is one that I often go back to is it's like the dirty dishes and how Often that becomes this sort of lightning rod in so many communities because our core childhood reactions to how do we care for the common space, whether it's cleanliness, whether it's noise, can bring up a lot.
9: My daughter is 20 years old and she moved in last year for the first time with a friend in college and I could see the train wreck ahead. (laughs) They had a good relationship, lots of things in common. And despite my guidance to my daughter, they did not talk about agreements around the shared space. So preemptive talks about this are so powerful. And yet, at least in the societies that I navigate, people are so reluctant to do that. We are clinging on to, we just need to find the right person. And if we find the right person, we don't need to go through all that mundane unpleasantness. We are just so addicted to this idea of romance and the one and the person who's make it all perfect. And my goodness, <laughs> we just we just land crashing from that one. So, Kevin, back to
2: what Victor was saying about emotional fluency. Different generations speak different languages, right? Mm -hmm. So what tips do you have? It's kind of like you're having to interpret across this generation between your generation, your mom and dad's generation. What tips do you have for other young people listening to our show about how to communicate feelings with their parents?
10: Okay, well, I know that kids today, they feel that their world and our experience with our friends and with youth today is something completely alien and separate from anything that our parents can relate to, which makes it very difficult for us to try to explain what's going on to our parents. So we try to, from time to time, come up with a scenario that they can relate to more, which may or may not be the truth. And I think that kids today need to realize that their parents want to, because they love you, they want to relate to what you're going through, they want to understand your experience, and you should not worry about their response, because they are going to be shocked at what you experience every day, but they need to understand that before you can relate to them at all.
11: I I would just add something quickly to that, if I may, and that is that When young people do begin to open up about some of what's happening in their lives, a lot of times we as parents want to get into fix-it mode, Mm -hmm. uh, which in some ways actually then becomes a barrier to intimacy. So we need to be really careful about that, and sometimes all we need to do is say, oh, that's interesting, what else about that? Or tell me more about that, and just keep inviting them, as opposed to, well, this is what I would do, or right away getting in there and trying to fix it. But again, just that notion of stepping back and just getting into active listening mode, as Lily Tomlin says, listen with the intensity normally reserved for speaking, or listen as if there's a thief in the house. It's an active process of, of trying to just be present uh, and not get into fix-it mode, which, which can shut things down.
12: Many times, instead of really listening, we're thinking what we're going to say. And that is not listening. And that is something that needs to be practiced so hard, because it's something that, that comes naturally. But just when you're a listener, it's not about you; it's about the other person. Give him his place in this conflict, and in general, in life, it helps. So, I want to ask both of you: Do you do you think, for example, how to listen and how to speak, and being able to see, to see the humanity and in, in the other, is that a pathway to peace? Absolutely. When you learn to speak your truth, people are listening. When you try to speak like people's truth or like nation's truth. And everybody has his own truth and just cause kind of like antagonism. But when you speak your own truth, people can notice that you're a human being and nobody nobody can, can ignore that for the long term because everybody has this human being inside of him. So when you show that you are a human being, it's much, much easier to listen to you as a human being and, and to treat you better. And I think that that's... That's a little secret that many people don't know. They try to to talk as if they're like representing a group or an idea instead of just representing themselves. Okay. If we
13: just normalize suffering so much, then we don't feel any motivation to help change the suffering of others or to validate when others suffer. Because if they're suffering, we're like, that's just the way life is. You know, I think it's something that I can honor and have understanding for and have compassion for and yet learn how to deal with my own suffering with more wholeness, more wholeheartedness, where I allow myself to feel, I allow myself to weep and to grieve, to feel depression, to feel lonely, all these things, and to find strength in the feeling instead of strength in the not feeling. I mean, imagine how much courage it actually takes to be vulnerable. That's actually such a huge sign of strength where we just know that our love and our worth is grounded enough where we can show our weakness. To other people and not feel so threatened and not feel so insecure (laughs) is because I know that I am loved and worthy, that I do know that I have something to offer the world, not from a place of I don't know if I'm worthy and I have to do all these things in order to earn my worthiness. I do believe that all of us have something to offer the world and it doesn't have to look in those typical superhuman ways, but just us being ourselves is such a gift. And if we could all realize how amazing we are and come from that place of just rootedness in our deity, in some ways, in the god in all of us. That's where the power comes from. And again, that's not based on our performance. It's just who we are.
0: The voices you heard in the last seven minutes or so included Carl Stayart and Maria Sylvia, on how to better get along in a shared living space. Teenager Kevin Malone and Dr. Victor LaCherva on improving communication between youngsters and their parents from our very first series episode in 2003. Also Israeli Maya Freed, a graduate of New Mexico's Creativity for Peace camp of some years back, now called Tomorrow's Women, and Chinese-American author Iris Chen. You'll notice a lot of these shows focused on crafting inner peace and interpersonal peace and better communication and self-talk, intending to reinforce the message in the old spiritual, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Our own personal responsibility for cultivating a culture of peace has been a key focus of Peace Talks Radio in its first 20 years. We'll hear more voices from the program just ahead, some suggesting how to apply that personal responsibility for peace into having an impact on specific issues and conflicts both close to home and around the world. Stay tuned for more of this Peace Talks Radio special marking 20 years of the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We'll continue after a short break.
14: Where are the strong... And who are the trusting? And where is the harmony? Sweet harmony cause each time I feel it slipping away. It just makes me want to cry. What's so funny about peace, love and understanding What's so funny about peace, love and understanding What's so funny about peace, love and understanding
0: For our other co-founder, Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. This is a special episode in our Peace Talks Radio series, serving up clips from 20 years of our programs on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Once our transcript is loaded up to our website, peacetalksradio.com, you can read all these clips, find out who said what. We'll mention most today, but won't always interrupt the clip to do so. So look for the details at peacetalksradio.com they were mostly interested in focusing on the message in this presentation, a little bit less on worrying about who the messenger is. But you can be sure that we've always done our best to vet our guests for their thoughtful take on topics and for being a good contributor to the reasoned discourse that seems all too rare to come by in our world today. So now a few more from the hundreds of voices that we've shared our platform with over 20 years of Peace Talks Radio.
15: I know I always tell this story, but it really is one I hold on to about my little Zen bird who starts off on a long flight across a massive country, and as the bird flies, sees a little wisp of smoke off in the distance. As the bird approaches a huge billowing smoke and recognizes that there's a monstrous fire that's destroying the land, the bird turns around and goes back to where the bird started because there's a little teeny pond where it goes down and gets a drop of water to start the flight back to the fire. And I remember hearing that story and being so disturbed by it. The Dharma instructor at the end of that story said, and this is how you must live, knowing it won't make any difference, and you have to do it anyway. And I I think in moments and times like this, at least for me, I keep carrying that drop knowing it probably won't make any difference, and I have to do it anyway.
16: There is an inherent risk to standing up, and I don't think that in my personal journey that is something that I want to paralyze me. Courageous resistance is something that we just learn step by step. You know, standing up when we see a very small act can lead us to standing up when we see something bigger happen. And especially at this moment in time, when we're seeing across the globe so much division and so much xenophobia, the cost of not standing up will end up being something that is much more problematic than being willing to take the risk that it bears on our life. Our lives and our spiritual journey are intertwined. So, while I may aspire towards letting go of ego and moving um, into higher connection with source energy, I also am living in the physical plane and want to acknowledge that my neighbors who don't have the same privileges that I do or that have been oppressed historically Part of my spiritual journey is learning how to extend that liberation onto others and stand with others who are struggling for liberation. We hear a narrative of people who are rapists and murderers and terrorists, and that is not the reality. So I think first, knowing the facts is helpful. Second, understanding the stories. I mean, we are seeing thousands of Central American migrants coming to the United States and they're largely people under five feet tall and they're very skinny and they are oftentimes malnourished because of how painful and problematic the journey was for them to to bring their children to this country. So just looking at someone like that, they don't pose a threat to us. And I think that if those people are people of faith, recognizing that our faith calls us to be kind and extend generosity and hospitality to our neighbors, and particularly to people that we don't know, the people that might be called the stranger in some traditions.
14: All it takes for our white supremacist society to perpetuate itself is for good white people to go about our lives being good non-racists. Because the way that we typically think about race in America is as a a problem of personal attitudes and personal behaviors. So the question that we're constantly uh, preoccupied with is, is that individual person a racist or not? Am I a racist or not? Meaning, you know, am I a member of the KKK? Uh, Do I use the N-word? Am I mean to people of color? You know, stuff like that, right? But that's not what racism is. It's not that those things don't matter at all. They do. But it's much more a matter of a structural, systemic situation that would take a more fundamental change in our institutions. Probably the biggest and most tangible things that need to happen probably need to happen at a governmental level. Government policy, the way our institutions function, You know, so just things like, uh, you know, the criminal justice system or what Cengarai Kumanyika called our so-called criminal justice system, the deep structural inequities in who gets policed and who gets punished and so on and so forth, for example, or the education system, the way that we allow ourselves to have this deeply unequal and unequal in a racialized way education system. But then there are also things like reparations a job guarantee or a baby bonds proposal where children would be given a bond basically kind of a trust fund like if you were a descendant of enslaved black people you would get a bigger trust fund than if you're a comfortable white person and actually a job guarantee now polls quite well sort of like the um, WPA in, in the Great Depression where anybody who wants a job and can't find one the government would provide one These are big, expensive programs. We do a lot of big, expensive things, including a trillion-dollar tax cut that we say we don't have the money for, but we find it, right? So if we wanted to really address the deep inequalities that have come from this history and that persist, um, these are some of the things that we we could be looking at. So from an individual standpoint, it becomes a matter of getting yourself educated and then maybe thinking, all right, the next time I hear a... uh, a potential presidential candidate talk about a job guarantee, I'm not going to just roll my eyes and say, that's crazy, we can't afford that. I might actually think about whether that's something that might be worth supporting.
17: Yeah, I think one of the ways in which we let ourselves off the hook when we are made to confront our biases is that, well, we have friends, you know, we, we, as you said, we have black friends, we have Jewish friends, we have Muslim friends, we have white friends, we have Latino friends, we have Asian friends, as though that then excuses us from ever holding, either consciously or unconsciously, attitudes, biases, prejudices, and perceptions that ultimately support and become the fuel of the systems that really deprive us all of equal access and equitable opportunity and equitable treatment. And that's never sufficient. It's one thing to say I have black friends. There's another thing to say I understand through my close association better what what, what that experience is like. But then there's another thing to say that I really have walked inside of that space intentionally with my friend and I've come out on the other side as an ally, as a person committed and willing to work not just for, for what's good for me and my family, but what's good for them and their family. and Even folks who say, I have good friends, when you ask them, so those friends visit with you, uh, you know their children's names, uh, you've shared anniversaries, birthdays, holidays with them, you've sat with their sick loved ones and they've sat with yours, then that I have a friend thing begins to break down.
18: You have chapters on white silence and white saviorism. In the first, you write that no matter what level of power or influence we have, our voice is needed, but mm. not as white saviors. Yes. Explain the difference here yes. and how trying to do the first could lead to people mistakenly doing the second. Right.
19: And people really struggle with this because, again, it becomes that either or. Am I supposed to speak up or are I not supposed to speak up? It's really important for people to understand there's no checklist for how to do this work perfectly. When you see something racist happening, it is up to you to say something. Because often in a situation where if the person of color is maybe one of the only people there and everyone else is white, when they speak up, that person of color speaks up and says, this is racist, oftentimes they will be gaslit and told, this wasn't really about race, why are you playing the race card? They didn't mean it that way. But when a white person will stand in solidarity with them, which is what allyship is, to back up their voice, that person of color knows that they're not alone. And so that's very, very important. But even also when a person of color isn't there, and maybe it's just white people and racism isn't happening, say something. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know it's wrong, say something. White saviorism is, it's very important to interrogate the intention behind which you may be trying to do something. Are you doing it because you want to look like the good white person? Or are you doing it because it's the right thing to do? And furthermore, in trying to help, are you taking the stance that I know what's best for them? Or am I consulting with them and, and asking, how may I be of service? And I'm so grateful for the people in my life who do that, you know, who ask me, how, how can I support you in this situation? Would it be helpful if I did this? Would I help, be helpful if they did that? And they give me the choice. I, I want to end by just saying, the work is challenging and it and it is hard and you will feel like, am I gonna get something out of this? Do I get a certificate? Do I get something at the end of it? Do I and get you cookies? don't You don't get a cookie. You don't <laughs> get anything at the end of it. But here's what you do get. You get you get to live your life according to your actual values. Your actual values being I want people to be treated equally, and I don't want to cause harm, or I want to cause less harm. And you, you get that gift, which is priceless. You're not just seen as good, but you're actually doing good. So here you are, someone who is concerned about what you're talking
20: about, concerned about racism, hate crimes, discrimination, the injustices that we are seeing mounting in our world today.
1: What do you do if, you're interested in being more involved? First, look at your own backyard. And I say that because when we're talking about things like racism and hate and misogyny and gender violence and fascism, sometimes they seem like intractable problems and they seem far away. But the fact of the matter is that sometimes there are people in our own family, in our own community, who have hateful and biased views. And so when you see those views being manifested and articulated, take them on. Two, connect with other people who feel similarly to you. There's always strength in numbers. Three, find a community organization. And so I will tell you there are community organizations across this country who are looking for volunteers. They're looking for financial support. They're looking in some cases for community connections. And then finally, most people are members of different institutions. And so let's say you are a member of a church, a synagogue, a mosque. You are a member of a PTA. You are a member of a reading group. You're a member of your local library interventions. Make sure your library has the newest books on these issues. Make sure they're on display. Make sure that your PTA is ensuring that students aren't being bullied in school. And if they are, that they're getting the resources they need make sure that your workplace has an up-to-date equity and inclusion policy and you know what have them bring speakers to talk about these issues do your part everyone has a role in making the world a better place and making the world a safe place for human beings for animals for the environment and so figure out a way to get involved and, and finally, thank everyone who is doing that work. There is a universe of us, and there is a large global community of us who are trying to make the world a better place.
0: Just a brief sample of some of the many shows we've done trying to help our world manage the racial divisions it struggles with. We heard Arjun Singh Sethi, author of the book American Hate Survivors Speak Out, also, Leila Saad, author of the book, Me and White Supremacy. And we heard about true allyship from the Reverend Alvin Herring at the time with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. And radio producer John Bewan, who explored racial bias in his podcast series, Seeing White. At the start of the segment, with the parable about the little bird doing what it could to help, it was Kathleen O'Malley, an Albuquerque psychotherapist, who traveled to Iraq on a personal peace mission just days before the United States incursion there in 2003. And Justin Remmer Themert in there too, director of the New Mexico Faith Coalition for Immigrant Justice. Both of them modeling activist spirit to understand the other and represent justice for all. In our 20 years of Peace Talks radio program, we've done what we could, like the little bird, to promote more compassionate communication, to address different kinds of conflict, as you'll hear ahead and certainly with a hope to bridge prejudicial gaps that exist in our society between races, religions, political ideologies, and gender identity. We spoke with transgender author Sally Murray Jackson, who came out as a woman at the age of 58, and has often been invited into groups to talk about bias and prejudice toward the LGBTQ community.
21: There aren't any real challenges when people invite you to come talk to them, but is when you're being sent somewhere Because somebody else felt they needed it. Even if they're there, it doesn't help. If the people are in the room because they were forced to be there, that's the big challenge. Because you have to win them over to listen to you in the first place. I did a training at a sheriff's department in another parish. And everybody was so receptive to everything. I was told afterwards they were there on their own time volunteering after their shifts and the room was packed that was easy because they came to learn because they had a transgender officer was working with them and they realized they had a larger transgender community than they thought and they wanted to know how to how to deal with them properly because they didn't want to be the problem in their department it's one of the things that people need to understand when you've got someone That's very different from you. There's a tendency to want to back away because we're afraid of the unknown. Okay. Well, how do you get to learn about that unknown if you just keep backing away from it? So the easiest way to find out what's going on in the LGBTQ community is to talk to somebody in the community. And most of us are willing to talk. (laughs) So... It's the only way to, you have to open lines of communication, as that's the only way to avoid just the perpetual fear, which then goes to hate, which then goes to violence. You break that cycle early, just by learning.
2: Even when you feel like you're in the right, let's say, in terms of justice, Mm -hmm. and you believe they're in the wrong, Mm -hmm. how do you keep listening to them and not say, hey, you're wrong? Mm -hmm. I think it's the same thing we do at the mediation
20: table, where we really, it's our job to come with a mindset of curiosity rather than conclusion. So I come and try to really understand I hear that you really believe X and I really believe Y. Can you tell me why you believe X and why you believe that so strongly? And I think what we really try to bring is that everybody is right from how they see the world. So I'm not looking for the right, I'm looking for your right and the other person's right.
2: Define positions versus interests. That's something mediators listen for, positions versus interests. If you think about it, a
20: position is a solution, it's a demand, and it's the what someone wants. So I want you to take your Christmas decorations down uh, the first of January. That's a, a position. And in conflict resolution, we don't pay a lot of attention to positions because that may not really be what's at the heart of the conflict why is it important to you that I take my Christmas decorations down is what we're really looking for. So the position is the what. The interest is the why that position is important. And it takes a lot of skill and practice to move from understanding what someone's position is to having them feel comfortable saying and identifying what their interests are. It's a very, it's a big, complex topic.
9: Our
0: co-founder, Suzanne Kreider, they're talking to professional mediator Ann Lightsey. More from our 20 years of Peace Talks Radio programs coming up after a short break.
10: Come and share my peaceful dream.
21: I'll keep it here for you, so we can make
10: it through all the darkest days of our lives. Peaceful dream, peaceful dream, peaceful dream.
1: Come and share
19: my peace for.
0: Well, they're the very first sounds heard on our Peace Talks radio series, John Mellencamp's song, Peaceful World. It opened up our first episode in January of 2003 on our only station at the time, our dearly loved and appreciated KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Twenty years later, we were up to episode 236, the one you're listening to right now, probably on one of 85 stations in 25 states. I'm Paul Ingalls, and we're listening back to just a relatively few minutes of our roughly 13,000 minutes devoted to peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies on our program. Like from these two guests who take a deep dive into empathy, first about teaching empathy in the classroom and then efforts to promote more empathy in the medical profession. Here first, Courtney Custer, who helped direct a local chapter of a national program called Roots of Empathy.
18: So Roots of Empathy is a social and emotional literacy program for elementary school and middle school children. And it's designed to increase students' empathy and reduce bullying and aggression and increase their social-emotional skills. Courtney, who is the teacher? The teacher is a baby, actually. We introduce an infant to the classroom that will visit the classroom uh, periodically throughout the school year to help the children learn about emotion. Uh, We also have an instructor that guides every class so it's not just the baby, but the baby is our star. The students can be anywhere from kindergarten through eighth grade. A couple of years ago I was teaching in a third grade class and our baby was visiting that day. The baby was seven or eight months old and sitting independently reached for a toy and fell over and started to cry. And so my job as the instructor is to coach the children, you know, what, what just happened? What did you notice? And so I asked the students, can you identify how the baby was feeling? And a little boy raised his hand and said, I think the baby is frustrated because he couldn't get the toy and he fell over. And so then from there, we kind of springboard it to let's talk about times that you felt frustrated and how do you handle it? How do you calm yourself down? How do you not get out of control? And then I asked for examples of frustration, and another little kid raised his hand and said, I'm trying to learn how to ride a bike, and I can't figure it out, and I'm very frustrated. And then his neighbor right next to him said, well, I live in his apartment complex, and I know how to ride a bike, so maybe I can help him. And so that whole exchange, you know, just from seeing the baby play, we got to you know, increasing their emotional vocabulary, identifying their feelings, identifying how a friend feels, how can we help a friend, how do we calm ourselves down when we're upset? And so that's the power of the baby, is whatever's happening with the baby, the instructor's job is to use that to guide the children to increase their social and emotional skills. You write, so you encourage people to turn towards suffering. Yeah. Is that difficult to it is.
15: Tell?
22: <laughs> it is. Which would you rather do, go get a massage or turn towards suffering? Everybody's going to go get a massage. But if we're really going to explore those root causes of disease or disease or a symptom, at some point we have to turn towards it. And if we're brave enough to do that together, some wonderful things happen things that make your hair stand up on the back of your neck and things that energize us, both of us, because we like to say curing goes one way, us to them, but healing goes both ways. And and we get just as much out of this as, as the other person does.
18: You know, and it's interesting, you write that we're all hardwired to be fixers rather than healers. What's the difference?
22: <laughs> a, well, there's a big difference. And both are beautiful, right? You know, If you have a broken fever, take me to UNM Hospital, let me be fixed by one of our great orthopedic surgeons. But if you have a fixer who's also a healer, ah, then, then you've got it. Then you have the surgeon who comes and sits by your bedside before surgery and puts you at ease and it creates positive expectation that, hey, uh, we're gonna get you better. And you've got a great team around you to help you succeed and we'll get you back to work and connected to your family.
18: Can you teach empathy?
22: <laughs> that's a big question. I believe yes. But there's also a difference between empathy and compassion. And I'd like to just hit on that a little bit here, that empathy requires me to feel your pain and then do something about it. That's different than sympathy. Sympathy means we cry together and go home. There's no action. Empathy requires action to what I feel from you. Now that leads to empathy fatigue, because when we're dealing with suffering, that's assuming I can fix your suffering which I can't, I can't do that. But compassion is different. That's two people suffering together. In the root essence of that word, we are one. That when I help you, I help myself. And when I have that mindset, when I walk in that room, uh, that makes it more fun because I'm gonna connect to your story. Once I hear that story, we're gonna try and figure out a better path towards your health and we're gonna do it together through dialogue, where that word means meaning running through. How do we open up that conversation? And in helping you, I help myself. And the beautiful thing about this work in medicine is sometimes if you have this relationship with your patients, they'll come into my office. I'm supposed to be treating them, and they'll say, Dave, you don't look so good, right? <laughs> Are you getting enough sleep? And we start to treat each other.
0: Dr. David Rakel, author of The Compassionate Connection, exploring more empathetic medical service with our Megan Kamrick. As we've mentioned, one of our goals on Peace Talks Radio has been to elevate the stories of some of the courageous peacemakers throughout history, as well as today. But whose history is often being elevated anyway? A peacemaking topic in and of itself. We talked with Dr. Jeffrey Dierensborg, Tribal Councilperson for the ataka Nation.
6: The thing about history is that so often it does not include very much from the point of view of either native people or enslaved people or from people of color in general in the general narrative of american history and then for some of us in the zine especially those of us who are louisiana creole i always like to put in elements of people who are both african and native uh, which i am Uh, and so I think that that's an untold story and it's kind of remarkable when we think of the things that we teach students about, say, a westward expansion and so-called pioneers, people who went into places that were already very well populated and destroyed uh, ways of life and trying to understand American history from the Native point of view means that you kind of have to teach some things that are not necessarily going to be on the state-mandated exams. Um, and that's always a tension because the, the students need to pass those exams. And at the same time, there's also a commitment one has to have to the truth at some point where one has to say, you know, there are things about this that are not being told that you need to think about that, you know, about, for example, think of how influential the era of Reconstruction is in the South and the formation of Jim Crow and everything. And in Louisiana history, in high school, begins at 1849 and skips the Civil War. So that seems very deliberate attempt to avoid discussion of some of the uglier aspects of American history that passed through this place and. I think that it's important that the people in this country know a broader story about what happened, a story that encompasses more types of people of every sort, and that helps them not only get a better picture of the past, but also a better picture of current situations that people endure now.
0: We mentioned at the beginning of our show that it was the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the United States that got Suzanne Kreider and I talking about creating a show that might balance the coverage of conflict that we were certain we'd be in for with coverage about peacemaking. So a few years after 9-11, we were intrigued by a group that called itself 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows, which included Anne Muldery, whose son Stephen was trapped in a conference room in one of the twin towers of the World Trade Center and died on that day
23: i'll tell this little story because it was one of the first instances of my being brave enough to speak my mind after my son's death and i spoke my mind to a truly treasured person who came to me and said what they have done to your son is so terrible and i know they are in hell And I loved this person who said those words to me, and I knew it was an attempt to comfort me. It was a desire to comfort me. And I said to him, all I can say is that my darling son Stephen has gone to another world in the company of the people who did this. And all I can see is him saying to them, as I heard him say to his brothers on the basketball court, what would you do that for? when somebody had done something they shouldn't have done. I don't know how to explain my faith that that is the case, but I do believe that we all share in the guilt of the violent solutions that are affected in our lifetime. And I believe we can all share in the healing and peace if we will struggle, as Martin Luther King said and that the name of our group. Wars are poor chisels for carving out peaceful tomorrows. If you think you can make a peaceful tomorrow with a war, you're a foolish person. In our own attempt to craft a peaceful tomorrow, 10
0: months after 9-11, Suzanne Kreider and I and a small audience were gathered in an auditorium to tape a pilot program for the Peace Talks radio series with local meditation teacher Eric Kolvig as our guest.
24: Developing inner peace in challenging times keeping our heart open in hell, which sometimes we're called to do, means really engaging fear, really engaging the anxiety itself immediately.
2: Engaging the anxiety. When I get anxiety, boy, I'm sweating, mm-hmm, <laughs>
24: mm-hmm. my
2: heart is pounding. Right. How do I engage that?
24: Well, you know, it's a, Franklin Roosevelt, when he first became president, his very first words to this country are the ones that are most memorable. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. This was in the middle of the Great Depression. A lot of people were suffering. In order to get past fear, to work our way through fear, we have to engage it directly to see what it is. Fear is always about something in the future. It's never about something that's happening in the moment. The future doesn't exist. Fear is a projection of something that may or may not happen. And when you see that, if you can see you're simply projecting something into the future, You don't have to believe it. You can say, I don't need to believe this. And to come back to whatever your present situation, no matter how challenging it is, by reducing the fear, your present situation is much more workable. Just one little example is uh, years ago, I was doing some deep therapeutic work and I was working with some severe trauma that I had as a child. And uh, as a result of doing that work, uh, terror actually came up. And not just in the therapeutic situation. So I was driving to work one day And I was experiencing terror. My hair was standing straight up, you know, that there were these waves of energy going through my body. Uh, Very intense experience. My mind happened to be strong at that moment. Uh, And and so I knew it was just fear, and I was able to hold it. So as as I just held fear there and just kept driving, I got to work and a co-worker uh, greeted me and said, How are you doing? And I said, Well, I'm experiencing terror right now, but otherwise I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> and it was true. In that moment, I didn't have to believe the terror. And so it was possible to feel all the physiological reactions and all of the, uh, the contraction in the mind and say, okay, this is just fear.
25: The work is a way to identify and question the thoughts that cause all the suffering in the world everyone's suffering, and anyone can do it if they're open to it. Byron Katie is the originator of The Work, a strategy for dealing with
0: inner conflict. Among her books, A Thousand Names for Joy.
25: So let's say, for example, I believed he doesn't care about me. The first question is, is it true? So I'm beginning to question the thought he doesn't care about me. The second question, can I absolutely know that it's true? He doesn't care about me. And then notice how the mind begins to flood me with proof and images, you know, to uh, convince me that it's true. And just to notice and wait and allow another answer to surface. And then that third question how do you react when you believe that thought? And the fourth question who would you be without that thought? And then I invite people to turn it around to the opposite He doesn't care about me. The opposite would be, I don't care about me. And that's a mind blower. How can I expect people to care about me if I don't even care about me? And then I find the ways that I don't care about me, and it wakes me up to them. And I'm shocked. And then another opposite or turnaround would be, I don't care about him. And I begin to identify where that's true. And then immediately I'm awake to it and my behavior changes and it's nothing I have to do. So my behavior with that person and everyone, it radically shifts because we're working with original cause. And mind is original cause. Mind is cause.
0: Author Byron Katie and meditation teacher Eric Kolvig, among our earliest guests in the first 20 years of Peace Talks Radio, We're gonna close up this special compilation hour by inviting you to go to our website, peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear a second hour of highlights from our 20 years. You can hear and share this program again. You can read an entire transcript of today's clips too. And importantly, you can consider a donation to our nonprofit organization that produces this program separately and apart from your own public radio outlet that you might be hearing us on. Now we encourage you to donate to both it and to us to keep us from folding this now two-decade effort to keep talk of peacemaking on the airwaves we need more support to merely maintain much less grow this effort find the secure donate button at peacetalksradio.com we close with a clip from our program honoring congressman civil rights icon john lewis who passed in 2020 and left us with plenty of inspiration to work for peace
5: you must keep the faith and keep your eyes on the prize. That is your calling, that is your mission, that is your moral obligation, that is your mandate. Get out there and do it. Get in the way. In the final analysis, we all must learn to live together as brothers and sisters. We all live in the same house. And it doesn't matter whether we are black or white, Latino, Asian American, or Native American. It doesn't matter whether we are straight or gay. We are one people. We are one family. We all live in the same house. Be bold. Be courageous. Stand up. Speak up. Speak up. And find a way to create the beloved community, the beloved world, world of peace, world that recognizes the dignity of all humankind. Never become bitter, never become hostile, never hate, live in peace, be one, one people, and one love. Thank you very much.
0: The recorded remarks of John Lewis from an Emory University commencement address from a few years earlier. The recorded applause from that crowd gave way to an extended standing ovation from the crowd of friends and colleagues encircling John Lewis's flag-draped casket, resting in the center of the U.S. Capitol Rotunda, July 27, 2020, ten days after Congressman Lewis died at the age of 80 of pancreatic cancer. For our entire Peace Talks Radio reporting team from throughout our first 20 years, Carol Boss, Megan Kamrick, Hannah Colton, Sarah Holtz, Judy Goldberg, Jonathan Miller, Avishai Sen Senjan, Daniel Price, Yamini Ranjan, and Priyanka Shankar. For our Executive Director, Nola Davis-Moses. For the many who've served on our Board of Directors, and for all who have donated to our cause. And for our co-founder and my Peace Talks Radio partner, Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls, Thank you for listening to and for
2: supporting Peace Talks Radio.